Uh, if you find the Gospels about three-quarters of the way through Scripture, if you're not sure where the book is, and you find Matthew, you just go backwards from there, and you'll find Malachi and Zechariah and then Haggai. So we're going to be in Haggai 1. As you're turning there, I was debating whether I was going to take a dig at my dad or my sister in the introduction as a way of joking. Um, and I was going to do my dad because he named the sermon without asking me. It's happened before, and we talked about it, but I can't honestly go after him because he named it very similarly. I think he made it Consider Your Ways, and I made this sermon title Thinking Carefully About Our Ways. So really that means I have to go up to Sarah. So I was telling her uh, last night how, like, kind of a, uh, like a, a deep-seated fear with, like, preaching. It's like, I'm going to turn in the manuscript, and, like, the page is going to be missing. So it's going to go from, like, three to five. I'm not going to know, like, what is going on. And it would just be horrifying. And she said, she confessed that that made it tempting to want to take a page out of my manuscript. <laughs> so if you see me turn uh, mid-sermon and a look of abject terror comes on my face, that means that the devil got a foothold in my sister's life, and it's her fault. And honestly, it's probably going to crash and burn. But... Okay, so we're going to do Haggai 1. It's 15 verses in the first chapter. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the CSB. Uh, at my church, we usually stand for the reading of God's Word, so if you guys are able uh, and willing, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'll conclude and say, this is the Word of the Lord, and then you can say, thanks be to God. So we can try that out. Haggai 1, out of the CSB, the Word of the Lord reads like this. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Serubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say, The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. So in your account, the skies have withheld the dew, and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on people and animals, and on all that your hands produce. Then Serubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, 
and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And I'll open us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you uh, in this moment, and that I would speak words that are uh, the proper balance of encouraging and comforting and challenging. Um, Only you can perfectly uh, cut and then heal and put us back together, Uh, but I pray that you would use your word in this moment to speak to all of us. Um, and that you would give us uh, humility as we receive it. It's in your son's name I pray, amen. Christianity is a straitjacket. Maybe you've heard some version of this argument before. It may have been from someone who is resisting, resisting the legitimacy of Christianity or denying some of its truth claims. Maybe a friend or a coworker or a new acquaintance, a stranger to you. It goes like this, Christianity is a straitjacket. It's too constricting. It's suppressive. It's too exclusive, controlling. Uh, It's coercive. It can be manipulative. I think there's probably a part of most of us that can relate to to this sentiment or to the person who's making this case. To that person, freedom is the ability to choose what they want to do, when they want to do it, and they don't want to be told otherwise. And I think most of us can probably understand that impulse Uh, I think especially as American citizens, there is a valuable aspect of our country where we do value in so many ways personal freedoms. Christianity as a Straitjacket is also the title of a book from Timothy Keller's uh, The Reason for God. And in The Reason for God, Keller is arguing for the reasonableness and uh, the beauty of Christianity and its teachings. Uh, specifically the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the first seven chapters are dedicated to engaging some common argument that's made against Christianity. Uh, And one of the most common is this idea that Christianity is a straitjacket. And so in chapter three, Keller uh, engages that argument. And he contends that the concept of freedom isn't as simple as we oftentimes make it out to be. He writes in the third chapter of the book, in many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as it is finding the right ones or the liberating restrictions. I'm going to read that again because it's really good. So he's engaging this Christianity as a straitjacket narrative, and he's saying in many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. And as Christians, I think we also should be able to relate to the point Keller is making here. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 5, verses 13 and 15, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. And similarly, he writes earlier in the same letter, for freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. For the Christian, freedom is bought by the blood of Jesus and it is a supernatural gift. 
So by identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, believing that he's the son of God and that he died for sinners like you and like me, we're raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, and then we're empowered by the spirit of God to walk in step with God's revealed will. Freedom then in a Christian sense, in a moral and spiritual sense, it isn't the ability to choose to do whatever we want to do in any given moment. Rather, according to the scriptures, it's the ability to actually break free from sin's enslaving power and obey God. And the freedom to which we have been freed is the freedom to live a holy life, imitating Jesus. And this all sounds good, but it's not easy, right? I mean, think back to some of your most recent sins, whether deeds or attitudes, the obvious ones, the ones that have come to your mind. As I think back on mine, it's not that I didn't know what the right thing to do was or that what I was doing was wrong. I knew it was sinful. And the same is probably true for you. You knew it was wrong, but you wanted to do it anyway. Or perhaps in the heat of the moment, you failed to consider what was really true about the sin, what was true about God, what was true about your identity in Christ. We're forgetful people. That's the bottom line. And so here's where we're at this very moment. Today, some of us are stubborn. Some of us are really afraid. Some of us are deeply angry. It's complacent. We're satisfied to live normal lives and to give God a portion of our time and attention, uh, but we have no real intention of giving him our whole lives. Not really. We think we can kind of bargain with God. I want to submit to you that we have a lot in common with the people of God as described in the book of Haggai. If you have trusted in Christ and call yourself a Christian, then you've experienced a miraculous encounter with God. That's your story. He has brought you from death to life. He intervened in the course of human history. He sent his son into the world to die for you. Uh, and he's radically altered the trajectory of your life. And the people of God in the book of Haggai, they've experienced a miracle too. God raised up Cyrus the Great. I'm pretty sure you guys have talked about him in your uh, study of Isaiah. And after conquering the Babylonians, he made a way for the Jewish exiles living in Babylon to return to their homeland in safety and to rebuild their temple and worship their God. But the people of God in the book of Haggai have forgotten God. Or at least they don't really see God and his call on their lives as all that relevant or important. They're actually in a really tough situation, and they're also distracted. The good news this morning, family, is that when we forget God, he hasn't forgotten us. God never forgets us. Not only does God never forget us, when we forget him time and time again, he, in his mercy and kindness, confronts us in order to bring us back to himself. That's what he does because that's the sort of God he is. And we're going to see him do it here this morning in Haggai's day. And I believe he's among us this morning as well, and he's ready to do the same thing. Morning sermon, I'm going to break it up kind of into three sections. Uh, we're going to start with some background, some historical context. My understanding is that I think my dad is going to complete the book probably uh, preaching and that he's going to do chapter two in a week or two. Um, and so I think I want to set them up well as far as the historical context. I want to set us up well. Uh, and then I'm going to break the actual text into two sections. Uh, seeing the problem in verses 1 through 11, and then saying yes to God in verses 12 through 15. 
So as far as historical context, if we're going to understand the book of Haggai, we need to spend some time discussing the historical context of the book. That is where we're at in the storyline of the Old Testament people of God. Some of you are here for this, you're ready, you're loving it, and some of you are dreading this, so I hope I don't lose you. I have about a page of single-spaced notes, so stick with me. Uh, the book of Haggai is one of three post-exilic prophets in the Old Testament. So you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And when I say post-exilic, uh, I mean that these three books uh, are describing a time after the exile in Babylon. Uh, so the Jewish people have returned, much of the Jewish people, have returned from Babylon, live in their native land, um, and that makes them post-exilic books. And this return was made possible by Cyrus II. Uh, he's often called Cyrus the Great. Uh, in 539 BC, he expanded the rule of the Medo-Persian Empire, and he expanded over the Babylonians. Um, so he brings the Babylonians under his control. Then in 539, 538, basically immediately thereafter, he decrees that Basically, all the Jewish exiles across his empire, and including in Babylon, which is probably where most of them were, they're welcome to return to the land. Uh, the land is now referred to as Yehud. It's like a uh, region in a larger province, the way the Medo-Persian Empire has uh, divvied it up. And so, uh, you know, they're still under the thumb of the Medo-Persians. It's not like they have their independence. It's just that he takes more of an approach of, I'm going to accommodate the peoples I conquer. I'm going to honor their gods. And in that sense, he thinks he'll create some stability in his empire. And so the region they're in uh, includes their smaller region. Uh, and then in 537 or 536, uh, under the initial leadership of the governor of Judah, uh, Sheshbazar, and then under the leadership of the second governor, Zerubbabel, and the high priest Joshua, they actually lay the foundation of the new temple. Uh, but the work is ultimately abandoned. We could spend some time looking at the reasons why. The point is that they have experienced some opposition uh, from sources that are unnamed. You can read about this in the book of Ezra. Uh, that is in 537 or 536 BC. Uh, Cyrus the Great dies in 530. It's like six years later. So he dies. There's like three other kings in the empire, I believe. And eventually, we come to the year 520, which is where we're at uh, in the text now. This is actually 18 years after they've returned from exile in Babylon. We're in the second year of a new king, uh, Darius Histopes. He's a new Medo-Persian Medo ruler, and the work on the temple is still unfinished. The foundation was laid like 16 years ago, uh, but the work on the temple is unfinished. It's been abandoned. There's some opposition, but the text before us today seems to suggest there's more than that going on. Okay, so that's most of the context. Briefly, I want to highlight some of the main characters. Uh, Haggai's pretty easy because he's a prophet of the Lord. Most people presume he's the author of this book that's named after him. But beyond that, there's a lot of speculation as to, you know, the length of his prophetic ministry, where he was from, all sorts of things, but there really isn't any definitive consensus because the book doesn't say much about him. Um, so he's the prophet of the Lord. Zerubbabel is the governor of the Jewish people in the Yehud region. Uh, it's a little unclear how he came to be the governor after Sheshbazar. Some people think that they're the same people. 
really not that important. I don't think it's the same person, but the point is he's the governor and under the Medo-Persian still. Uh, and then you have the high priest, Joshua. Uh, he's the son of Jehozadak, it says. Um, Jehozadak was actually taken into captivity into Babylon. Um, and his father, his father, Sariah, the high priest, was too. He was probably executed by Nebuchadnezzar. You can read about that in 2 Kings. So in summary, I hope I haven't lost you. In summary, the Jewish people have returned from exile in Babylon. They're living in their homeland. Their main leaders are Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. They've been back for nearly 20 years, and the temple hasn't been rebuilt. The foundation was laid, but that was it. And so as things stand now, it remains unfinished. All right, in verses uh, 1 through 11, we're going to look at, look at the problem. I tagged it, seeing the problem in verses 1 to 11. The book of Haggai opens in a remarkable way. I want to reread verse 1 for us. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Quickly, I want us to notice two things right off the bat. The first is that the date is framed with reference to a pagan king ruling over the people of God, not to a Davidic king ruling over them. Uh, there is no Davidic king ruling over the people of God as things stand now. Uh, that is not as important this week, but if, uh, if my dad... Cliff continues to preach the book of Haggai. That is going to factor in into chapter 2. The second thing is that uh, Israel's two primary leaders are being addressed. But if you compare verse 1 to verse 12, you can kind of see that the Lord, through his prophet, is addressing these two leaders as representatives of the people. So he's addressing the people at large. That's very clear from verse 12. However, he addresses the, the leaders as representatives. In verse 2, the Lord begins the prophetic announcement by giving a summary of what his people are saying. So I'm going to read verse 2. The Lord of armies says this. These people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. That's what these people are saying. The time of the Lord, or the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. One commentator notes that by this time, the people of God have been without God's temple for 66 years, if you go back all the way to when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and raised the city of Jerusalem. So it's been 66 years since they've had the temple. And this is significant since the house of the Lord had at least two functions, at least two functions to the house of the Lord. The first would be sacrifices for sin happened there. So uh, sacrifices were a divinely prescribed means of dealing with sin. Uh, it was a way of dealing with sin, of forgiveness, uh, and being made right with God during this, this era. Ultimately, of course, you know, any, any Israelite who's saved in the uh, Old Testament period is saved based on the blood of Christ, and it points forward to that. However, this was God's prescribed means. This is the way to obey me and to deal with your sin. So that's the first function. The second is that God's glory dwelt there. So if you read across the Old Testament, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go to certain passages, but you can see how in the tabernacle and then the temple, God's glory dwells in a special way. Though God is everywhere, he dwells in a special way with his people at the temple. 
He communes with him there. So this attitude of the people of the time has not yet come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt, it sort of represents a kind of casual indifference to these matters. Uh, with this in mind, one commentator, his name is Michael Stead, he writes, their neglect, that is the people's neglect, of the temple over the past two decades demonstrated indifference to the Lord's dwelling and their own sin. It's indifference. It's not flashy, but it's there, and God is, is addressing it. In verses 3 and 4, we see the Lord give his assessment of the stance of his people on this matter. They've said the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt, and he's going to speak into that and give his, his appraisal of that attitude. So verse 3 reads, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So in asking a single question, the Lord is able to highlight the misplaced priorities of his people. And verse 4 is pretty devastating. It's, uh, it's a question that reveals the self-centered and uh, godless priorities of the people and putting off the responsibility. Uh, and it's a reminder that sometimes a question can be the strongest rebuke. Uh, I think anyone who you know, grew up with a mom or dad knows how that can be the case. Like, did I ask you if you wanted to do that? And it's a question, but it, you immediately know it's a rebuke, it's a correction, they're speaking into your life. It makes me think of Jonah, honestly. So it's always made a strong impression on me. Jonah's annoyed and upset with God for being so gracious and merciful to the people living in Nineveh. And he's just God very openly, and the Lord asks him, is it right for you to be angry? And that's all he says. And he says a version of that question twice. And it's, 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 it shows care and love, but it's a rebuke at the same time. And it's very effective. Uh, also in verses 3 and 4, I want us to see uh, that there's an emphatic use of the pronouns in verse 4 that should guide our interpretation of the Lord's question. This is clear in the, uh, in the original language. It really is, should you be living in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? really highlights that. And of course, the answer is no. The people of God have put off the main task before them, and they've gotten busy with other less important tasks. In every stage of life, and with every big decision, there will always be the temptation to put your priorities over God's priorities. It might be putting your family above God's priorities in the kingdom of God. It might be putting your education, your job, your comfort, over-participating with God and the work of building his kingdom. This text should shock us with the reality of just how casually we can slip into a pattern of indifference toward what God really wants for our lives and what he calls us to as disciples of Jesus Christ. Disobedience isn't always flashy or shocking. Sometimes it is, and that's what really gets our attention. But sometimes, like in today's text, it's just plain old indifference. We see from the text before us that a hard heart and a busy schedule is a recipe for a wasted life. In verses 5 and 6, the Lord continues to communicate his displeasure and disappointment, really, with his people's choice to delay in rebuilding the temple. And he instructs them, think carefully about your ways. I'm going to read this again. Now, the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. 
You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. A more wooden translation of this expression, think carefully about your ways, would be put your heart upon your ways. That's the idiom that he uses here. Literally, put your heart upon your ways. You're setting your heart as the seat of emotions and thinking to consider what you are doing. And then the Lord goes on to tell the people the things that they should notice. He does the work for them to some degree. He proceeds to outline what their experience has been like, presumably for the past nearly two decades now. The text doesn't exactly say that, but it seems likely to me that this has been their experience since they have put off doing the Lord's will. We see that disappointment, uh, dissatisfaction, and a scarcity that never quite reaches their expectations or satisfies their basic desires, this has been their experience. This has been the experience of the people of God. Three basic necessities of life are mentioned, food, drink, and, clo- drink and clothing. And they're there, but they haven't quite fulfilled. They haven't lived up to the expectations of the people of God. Uh, one Old Testament scholar who I absolutely love is J. Alec Matir, and I think he really captures what's going on here in a very pithy way. He says, they had goods, but the good life eluded them. That is the situation of the people of God as we read it here, especially in verse 6. They had goods, but the good life eluded them. And here I think we see an invitation from God that we can learn from and put into practice. Uh, this is a practice that we would do well to incorporate into our own lives. God is inviting his people to slow down, to take stock, and really assess their situation. So I want you to take a moment this morning to consider the state of your heart before God in an honest way. Uh, God wants you to live the good life. There's no condemnation in Christ. It's not about that, but it's about, am I living the good life? Am I experiencing human flourishing the way wants me to? So ask yourself these questions. Am I in a healthy place spiritually? Am I drawing closer to God in this present stage of life that I'm in? Or am I moving further away from him? Are the patterns of activity that I'm engaged in or the attitudes uh, that I'm displaying, are they consistent with the good life? And by that I mean the path of wisdom and obedience that God wants for, for you as his child. Are the attitudes and the patterns of activity consistent with that? Am I flourishing? Am I enjoying life and the confidence that my hands are open before God, that I'm saying yes to God and living with open hands? Or are my fists clenched tight? You know, am I holding on to things, holding, you know, that I hold dear, that I am afraid the Lord would want me to give up? Have I put off doing something that I know God wants me to do? Am I refusing to forgive someone or seek out reconciliation with a brother or sister in Christ? Am I putting off confessing a particular sin to a trusted brother or sister? When God confronts us in our sin and instructs us to reflect upon our ways in an honest way, uh, 
I think it's imperative for us that we see this as an act of love because that's what it is. God is correcting his people here, yes, but he's urging them to reflect on their situation ultimately out of love uh, because that is the loving thing to do. Um, The same love motivates him when he intervenes in our life as well and confronts us with our sin. Hebrews says that, uh, you know, the Lord disciplines his children. So I want us to see that this is this is God engaging in love. I think it's really easy for a caricature of the Old Testament to be it's it's all wrath and then Christ comes and you know then it's all love. And the reality is, uh, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are both a triune God, and they both talk about mercy and kindness, and they both speak of judgment. Um, and this is God correcting His people, but He is loving them. Now turning to verses uh, seven through eleven. We see the Lord tell his people a second time, think carefully about your ways. But this time he spells out what their next action step should be and what getting back to the right priorities will look like. Uh, So let's read verse 7 together. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and thou will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on people and animals and on all that your hands produce. Rebuild the temple and thus get back to pleasing or find God. That's the next step that the Lord gives his people. And the language here is very intentional. Uh, to be pleased refers to God taking delight in uh, the sacrifices of his people. Uh, if you want to see this demonstrated, uh, you could look, look at Jeremiah 14, 12. Amos 5.22. In those texts, I believe definitely in the one in Amos, God's telling his people that I'm not pleased with your sacrifices because he's making the point that you can't just make a sacrifice and automatically please me. Like, the state of your heart makes the sacrifice holy is basically what he's saying. But we see this language used, and this language is referring to God taking delight in people's sacrifices, which again, isn't something they can do right now properly because they haven't rebuilt the temple. Uh, And the other aspect of the language I want us to see is when uh, the Lord says, uh, I'll be pleased with it and be glorified. And so to be glorified refers to a reversal of the Lord's removal of his presence from the temple. So if you wanted to look more into this, you could go to Ezekiel chapters 8 through 10. And there's this really powerful... uh, I think it's a vision of Ezekiel where he basically sees the glory of the Lord begin to depart from the temple. Uh, And it keeps coming further out and further away. And the idea is that God is removing his his presence that's been there in a special way from the temple. uh, And they're going to be judged by the Babylonians. And so when it talks about being glorified, it's referring to a reversal of that removal of his presence. The presence would come back and be among the people. Um, we should also notice here uh, 
It wasn't explicitly stated, but what was implied in verse 5 and verse 6 about the frustrating, disappointing situation of God's people, it's now explicitly stated. So this situation has befallen them because of the Lord's direct intervention against them. If you look back at verses 5 and 6, it doesn't actually say that, but you kind of, a reader of the Old Testament is going to be thinking this is because they've forsaken the covenant, but now God just comes out and says it, that is the reason why. So verses 10 and 11 use language describing this undesirable situation of the people, and it harkens back to the curses described in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, you could look specifically at Deuteronomy 11, 17, 28, 51. Actually, if you want to start to turn to Deuteronomy 28, uh, I do want to look at part of Deuteronomy 28. I think it would be helpful if you turn there. Um, it's the fifth, fifth book in the Bible, if you're not sure where it's at. Uh, but these curses from the book of Deuteronomy, we learn from that book, would fall upon the people of God, they were told, if, uh, if they failed to uphold their end of the covenant. So Deuteronomy 28, I want to read the first verse. It says, Now, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all his commands I am giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. And then the chapter goes on in the first 14 verses of the chapter. It goes on to describe really the immense blessings that the Lord would shower upon his people if they worship him alone, if they obey his commands. And then you can see the rest of the chapter, which is lengthy, <laughs> I believe it's 68 verses, they spell out the opposite. So if the people do not worship the Lord alone and they don't keep his commands, they would experience hardship of all kinds. Uh, and this would be brought about by the Lord himself. So language from this chapter of Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the book it's very, very clearly alluded to in verses 5 to 11 of Haggai chapter 1, where we're at, as it talks about this situation of uh, drought, expecting much and then it amounting to little, uh, planting much, harvesting little, uh, eating but never be, being satisfied. This is all curse language from the book of Deuteronomy. The point then is that the people... Uh, returned from exile and living in the land, are beginning to experience the curses of the covenant once again. So this is shocking because they're on the brink of disaster. The Lord has brought them back from bringing the curses of the covenant upon them. They're back, and now they're starting to experience the curses again. And it's because they're not worshiping the Lord through their actions and the way they ought. The text seems to indicate less do than a farmer would like that the land wasn't producing crops optimally. And verse 11 states that the Lord had summoned this state of affairs. Here's something that I think we can glean from this. A certain emptiness and pointlessness is bound to mark our lives if we carry on day after day and we never give serious consideration to how the gospel should be shaping our whole lives. A certain emptiness and pointlessness, it's bound to mark our lives because this is the way God has made us with an end and it is to glorify him and to obey and to be like his son. In verse 9, when the Lord says, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house, the way the Hebrew text reads could have been translated while each of you is running to his own house. That's the verb that's used. 
So the Lord's house is in ruins while each of the people is running to his house. They're in quite a rush tending to their own business. These aren't people who are languishing and they're in a drought. They have, no time, they have tons of time on their hands. They're really working hard, but they're not getting out of it what you would expect they would get out of it because the Lord's hand is against them. So these people are in a rush. These are busy people. And there's a counterintuitive principle of life that I think uh, applies at all times uh, as humans in God's image. You would think that focusing on the non-essentials of life would lead to more of those things or more enjoyment of those things. So I'm going to focus on making money, and then I'm going to be able to enjoy my money more. Or I'm going to focus on making sure I can provide for my family, and then at the expense of basically like giving God his due and making him first in my life, and therefore I'm going to be even better at it because I'm giving more time to it. But what we actually see is the opposite. The opposite of that is true. Like the people of God in this passage, when we exchange the beauty of quiet time spent with God in prayer, uh, meditating on the scriptures, uh, when, we ex- when we exchange uh, really the gift and the task of labor in his kingdom, or just enjoying the gifts of friendship uh, and nature, when we're too busy for those things, uh, we're exchanging those things uh, for the pursuit of more stuff, whatever it is. We're building our little kingdoms. Uh, we're placing our hope in things that ultimately are not going to satisfy. Uh, We're placing our hope in things that are going to disintegrate and be forgotten. Uh, And when we do this, we expect much, but it will always amount to little, like verse 9 says. When we strive to build our little K kingdoms here on this earth instead of building God's uppercase K kingdom, we are going to expect much, but it's always going to amount to little. I want us to remember the words of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He says, So don't worry, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. The good life is experienced when we focus when our focus is on pleasing God uh, and not when it's on seeking our own interests first and foremost, striving to make our lives feel more and more secure. All right, then the second uh, heading for the text this morning, saying yes to God, verses 12 through 15. Uh, To our relief in verses 12 through 15, we see that the people respond to the prophet Haggai's message by obeying the Lord, uh, by saying yes to him. So I'm going to reread these verses for us. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest, or then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. Lord, rouse the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of Armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month and the second year of King Darius. 
So we see that the people recognize the voice of the Lord and the prophet Haggai's words, and their obedience reveals that they fear the Lord. This expression, fearing the Lord, doesn't just mean being terrified of God. Instead, as one scholar puts it, it refers to giving God, quote, the wholehearted reverence and respect he deserves as the one and only God. So they're confronted with the word of God, and the people respond in obedience, and they choose to pay heed to the message, which reveals that they have begun to fear God. And look how the Lord responds. He encourages them. He says, I am with you. So three weeks later, 23 days to be exact, we can see this in the text, the people are divinely encouraged, and now they're empowered and energized. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're going to begin rebuilding the temple again. And we can see a pattern here in how the word of God forms the people of God in every age. The pattern is this. First, in verse 12, we see that we respond to the word of God. Second, in verse 13, we see that we're encouraged by the word of God. The Lord says, I am with you immediately. Immediately, he's ready to encourage them and meet them where they're at in their repentance. And then in verses 14 and 15, we see that we are quickened by the word of God. So again, the threefold pattern is responding to the word of God, being encouraged by the word of God, and being quickened by the word of God. Matir, the same uh, scholar I quoted earlier, he notes that this sequence is how revitalization and renewal of God's people happens ordinarily. He writes, The word of God is his, that is God's, chosen instrument of renewal, in which the key human factor is obedience, and the key divine factor and energizing work of God, making that obedience possible. I think we should be humble this morning as we consider... uh, this process, because even in our initial response to obey the word of God and that threefold pattern I talked about, God is the one who's spoken in the first place. Uh, he's the one who's provided the gracious means that grabbed our attention in the first place. And in this sense, we can see his love. And in addition to that, I want us to notice how the text says that the Lord roused the spirit of the people. Uh, this means that God woke up the people to complete the work he had called them to do. Not literally, I don't think, it's figurative, but the verb form has a causal sense. It's not that people woke themselves. Uh, It's not that the people um, just happened to wake up. The Lord caused them to awake. That's what the text is saying. So I want to be clear this morning. Uh, There is a tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, of course. There's a dynamic in our choice to obey that involves us exercising our own agency as human actors, but in the end, even this is understood as the fruit of God's grace working in our hearts. He is the one who rouses spirit to obey when we say yes to him. And so we should give him thanks and stay humble, uh, even when we can honestly say we're on track. In verses uh, 12 through 15, shift in the language compared to the passage. And I wonder if you noticed it. The Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts is how God is often referred to in, the, in verses 12 through 15. And this turn, turns to the Lord their God. And we see this people referred to, but that turns to the entire remnant of the people. I'm 
quote Montier again because I really think he captures the significance of this shift of the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies becoming the Lord their God and the, these people becoming the entire remnant of the people. He says, once they respond to the Lord's word, they show themselves to be truly the returned community. Not just those who have come back to the land, but in the deeper sense of returning, those who have come back to the Lord in repentance. I think it's fitting and closing to ask, where do you need to return to the Lord? Obedience and turning to the Lord in repentance reveals a fear of the Lord that's more than just lip service. It's what separated King Saul from King David. Uh, this fear of the Lord that's more than just the words you speak. When we are confronted with our sin and the ways in which we are brought into beliefs uh, or values that directly contradict the values of God's kingdom, have our undivided attention instead of God's kingdom, this is actually a gracious reminder from God that the path we're headed on, it's not the good path and it's not the way that leads to life. The bottom line is this, God loves you too much lie to you about what will make you happy. And that's a true principle and a lot of scripture. And I think it's how we need to see God's acting, speaking in a passage like this. It's the love of God that moves it, that prompts it. No other benefit in this life can rival the benefit of obeying God and the prospect of experiencing the assurance of his presence with you. God cuts us with his word exposing where we have exchanged intimacy with him uh, for lesser things, but he does this in order to heal us. He is the perfect surgeon. And on top of that, we have a great high priest uh, to turn to when we realize we've sinned, and it's Jesus, the Son of God. In closing, I want us to read uh, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. As you reflect on this idea of where do I need to return to the Lord? this, you need to keep this in remembrance as you process that and as you reflect on these things. I want to read Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 in closing. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Let's close in prayer.